Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting-edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two, and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Marty Otanez, who is an anthropologist and associate professor at the University of Colorado Denver. His research and filmmaking focuses on workers' rights in the cannabis industry, corporate social responsibility and accountability, and exploitative practices in the international tobacco industry. In this episode, we talk about cannabis workers' rights, social responsibility within the industry, social equity programs, and we have a conversation on how we can build a more inclusive, diverse, and equitable industry. We also talk about how working conditions at cultivation facilities are intimately connected to the quality of cannabis that patients consume. So this conversation is really part of our our larger goal of this podcast, which is to find ways to create better cannabis medication for patients. We also talk about storytelling and how the cultural narrative around cannabis is really in part of what contributed to its legalization. So a lot of your work as an anthropologist has been focused on the tobacco industry and particularly workers' rights within the tobacco industry. So tell me more about how you shifted your work as an anthropologist to cannabis. Great. Yeah, thanks for the question. So for over 20 years, I've been doing work on and off in um, the global tobacco sector, specifically a tobacco producing country in Central Africa called Malawi. And my main interest was looking at the men and women that produce tobacco and then trying to understand the practices of global cigarette makers and global leaf tobacco leaf buying companies and trying to understand how those practices of these companies influence the health and safety and labor rights concerns at the farm level in Malawi. And one of my main um, areas of interest was really trying to figure out how to hold the tobacco sector, these companies accountable for their bad labor practices. And so over time, I found it was getting a little more challenging to go to Malawi because of, you know, whether family or finances. And so I realized in Denver, probably around 2014, with the cannabis sector emerging as a vibrant part of our economy, that it's a really interesting arena of life to understand labor issues, especially in in terms of the major discourse not being discussed. So most of the discussion in the cannabis sector in Colorado was about, you know, going from an underground economy to above ground and looking at the practices of companies and how they can succeed. And there's very little discussion about health and safety at the workplace level. And so it was easy for me to shift because it was in my own backyard. But also Mm -hmm. 
I was really drawn to, you know, as an academic, as a scholar, as a engaged anthropologist of what I can do to not only understand the sector and look at labor issues, but also how to influence it so more people benefit from the cannabis sector. And I think another point to mention is, you know, I was born and raised in California, specifically Northern California, and then spent time in Southern California. And most of my uh, engagement in culture during my teens was, you know, skateboarding and punk rock. And I was always a supporter of cannabis culture, whether consumption or just I really appreciated all things cannabis at that time. And so it was really fun and sort of nostalgic to revisit this sector, but from an academic perspective. Yeah, that's very interesting. So when you first started your work in the cannabis industry, were you able to draw parallels between the cannabis industry and the tobacco industry? Yeah, great question. The parallels were really, really easy for me to to unpack and to to make visible. The first thing was really just, again, a, a focus at the workplace and the individuals who devote their labor to the production of cannabis, you know, trying to understand their livelihoods, mm -hmm. um, trying to understand workers' knowledge of their own situation and what they could do to uh, protect their health and assert their rights as workers. <coughs> Excuse me. Another parallel besides the labor issue was this emerging issue of cannabis companies portraying themselves as responsible corporate citizens and looking at their different projects that they would deploy to, to be engaged at the community level. And that could be like having workers in the cannabis sector volunteer in gardens in the community or companies doing other responsibility projects as a way to make themselves visible. And I was interested in how the companies engage in these corporate social responsibility projects, but at the same time, maybe operate a workplace where workers are exposed to pesticides or exposed to powdery mildew, or even having a hostile work environment where if they try to assert their rights as workers and create unions, the companies who are claiming to be responsible would obstruct the workers' right to organize. So I was really interested in these things, which were also parallels in the um, tobacco sector. Right. And of course, in workers within the cannabis industry don't have that protection of the federal government. I mean, fundamentally, these businesses are still illegal at the federal level. So, so what did you learn through your research about workers and working conditions in uh, these cannabis businesses, whether that be cultivation facilities or manufacturing labs, dispensaries? A and what specific issues came up in your research? So, well, just to clarify, at the federal level, yeah, there's no doubt that the sector is looked at differently by the federal government. But at the same time, there are federal labor laws that do apply to cannabis workers and cannabis companies. Mm -hmm. So you already have like a safety net there or infrastructure there. But I think um, what was interesting in terms of the findings was, you know, the approach I take is uh, listening to workers, you know, trying to understand their livelihoods and trying to understand the concerns that they have. And so the exploratory study that I did starting in 2015, probably spread over two years, was really just to learn at, uh, at my own level what workers were saying and trying to figure out how to enter cannabis spaces to document uh, the stories of workers. And so I think a couple of the key findings through uh, informal interviews and then also structured surveys and 
um, individuals being videotaped in um, a conversation with me about their uh, concerns, I think the running themes were workers really afraid for their health um, because of exposure to powdery mildew. And so powdery mildew, it's something that's not specific to cannabis, but it's something that is, as some people would say, even owners, an epidemic problem in Colorado because of the nature of the production in indoor facilities. Mm -hmm. and, and so some of the workers were a little concerned about their health because they would be exposed to powdery mildew throughout the day, especially trimmers. And so right. some some workers would take preventative measures like take Benadryl or even walk off the job because they would see that the weed that they were trimming was infused with so much mold and powdery mildew that the managers or owners would just say, as best you can, clean it up and then send it up to the shelves. And so some workers even said the weed that they trim, they see it infused with so much mold and powdery mildew that they wouldn't consume it themselves. And so they feared for not only their health because of exposure to mold and powdery mildew, but also consumers who were consuming it. Wow. And when did you start this research project? So it started roughly, I would say, doing preliminary work in the late 2014 time and then 2015-16, uh, you know, disseminating my research in terms of recruitment of study participants and then processing and writing it up later in 2017-18 because this project is one of a couple projects. And, you know, one of the biggest things uh, with the project that I'm trying to do is really figure out how to move from being just a social scientist writing up findings to using the data to inform me trying to influence the landscape on which workers are protected, but then also you know, to try to influence the landscape in which companies in the cannabis sector could be held accountable for some of the bad practices in the um, workplaces. And specifically what I mean there, in Colorado, there's been a move by some labor organizations to push what's called labor peace agreements. And so labor peace agreements are these kind of set of practices where companies agree to allow basically not obstruct a worker's right to organize. And then uh, in return, the labor organizations agree not to take on any job actions. And so at least five or six other states have um, cannabis companies that, that honor labor peace agreements. But in Colorado, there's been a lot of obstruction to this approach because I think underneath the veneer of this really hip and cool cannabis sector, there's some serious anti-worker, anti-labor tendencies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm wondering since 2014, when you um, when you started this research, have you noticed any improvements? I know testing standards are always evolving in the cannabis industry, um, and I think they have gotten stricter. You know, in the past couple of years, have you noticed any improvements in maybe workers' exposure to powdery mildew as um, the testing regulations have evolved? Yeah, I think there's. I mean, in general, there's a lot of good actors that are doing their best to ensure that workers have, you know, personal protective equipment like masks and for pesticide exposure or a mask for when they trim, uh, having good proper ventilation and all the other things necessary to protect, protect workers' health. Mm -hmm. So there's good actors there that, <clears throat> excuse me, there's good actors there that 
really try to ensure that the workplaces are safe and workers don't leave home in a health condition worse than when they got there. So the problem is there are a few bad actors that still seem not necessarily to care about workers' health and safety. And so I think there's a move to try to get training, not just at the managerial or owner level, but also training to the ordinary workers so that they fully understand ways that they can protect their health or where they can go when they feel that their health has been violated because of exposure to powder and mildew or um, pesticides. So yeah, there's, I think, some great efforts along positive lines um, of companies to protect workers, but at the same time, there's still a number of them that could probably improve. And part of that improvement is also being consistent with their corporate social responsibility approach. And mm. if you're claiming to be responsible along corporate lines, that also means, in, in my view, not actively obstructing workers or harassing workers who choose to assert their rights and maybe uh, form a union, for example. Yeah, definitely. And and I really do see, I really do see, especially for patients who are using cannabis as medicine, I mean, I see this all as a very integrated web. So how the product is made, um, you know, it, it, obviously if the workers are exposed to powdery mildew and then the patients are also exposed to powdery mildew and there's obstruction to prevent uh, labor unions are to prevent workers from speaking up about the products, then that eventually affects the patients. So I think this is all really integrated. And of course, workers' rights really do ultimately affect the end result of the product that is delivered to people who are using it as medicine. Definitely. And I think, you know, because the companies also, you know, we agree have a role to play, but there's also government agencies that probably could do a better job looking at consumer health, looking at workers' health. And I think one of the problems is just getting the different agencies, for example, the Colorado uh, Department of Agriculture, the uh, Marijuana Enforcement Division, um, getting these uh, these entities, as well as the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, to come together and and look at what could be done to create infrastructure where they're looking at samples, for example, from different cannabis, comp different cannabis companies that have their weed tested and looking at where there are problems with high levels of mold and powdery and mildew and then following up on what is being done to protect those workers in those workplaces where you see off the charts numbers with problems of pesticides or powdery mildew. So mm. companies have a role to play, but also government agencies. And I think to date, these three agencies uh, are not working well together as they should be based on how the regulations are written. Yeah. Well, let's circle back to corporate social responsibility. Um, and I know that you have an academic manuscript coming out on this topic. And and I'm I'm really curious about this topic because part of my work at my consulting business is I do a lot of applications. So license applications in new states where they've just legalized cannabis. And Always, always part of the process is, all right, what um, nonprofit organizations are you going to donate to or be involved in? How are you going to integrate responsibly into the community? So that's always part of this license application, this merit-based license application for a company to get um, to be able to start a cannabis business in many states across the U.S., but I always do wonder, you know, once they get get the license, first of all, you know, do these companies really execute on these social responsibility plans? And also, um, 
yeah, what what role do these businesses really play in the community? So, yeah, tell me more about this project and what have you learned and what are your thoughts on that topic? Sure, yeah. So I have an academic manuscript coming out probably later this year, co-written with a gentleman named David Vergara, and he's out of Switzerland, and he did a master's thesis um, focusing on corporate social responsibility in Denver, the Denver metro area. So we collaborated on this manuscript and really, it's just to create more discussion about corporate social responsibility and looking at it in the case of Colorado um, as more than just a marketing ploy or greenwashing. So making sure companies who administer and deploy corporate social social responsibility schemes, that they're tangible and they have more than just a nominal effect. And so what we're trying to do in this manuscript or what we have done is kind of go through the literature, and then um, look at Colorado's sector, and then just figure out what the patterns are and the trends are. And I think what's noticeable, at least in my section of the manuscript, is that if you drill down to certain companies, uh, there's a way to figure out how what they say they do in terms of corporate social responsibility contrasts majorly with what they actually do. Mm -hmm. And so the lens that I take specifically is looking at workers' health and safety. So corporations in the cannabis sector, you know, companies in the cannabis sector have really robust, or some of them, the bigger ones, have really robust schemes to um, engage in corporate social responsibility. But I think there's certain limitations with what they do because most of the schemes look outside of the corporation or the company and do, you know, community engagement projects or, you know, uh, other things in the at the community level, but might have a narrow definition of corporate social responsibility, what it means in the workplace. And the narrow definition could be simply having a workforce, for example, that's diverse along cultural or ethnic lines. Mm. And so with our manuscript, what we hope to do is two things, push a framework that involves content analysis, as well as documents, research and ethnographic interviews. So push that framework of looking at corporate social responsibility that then systematically goes through to show what companies are doing and contrast with what they are, what they um, actually do. So we found there's a disconnect. And one of the case studies that I focused on was Native Roots. Native mm -hmm. Roots, a big company, one of the biggest in Colorado. And, you know, I just went through some of the documents that are available through uh, requests through the Colorado Department of Agriculture, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, and OSHA and others, and found that there were 83 complaints along health and safety and other lines, like environmental lines, and looked at these complaints and tried to understand how these complaints conflicted with the principles of corporate social responsibility. Mm. And so through our analysis, we just kind of present cases to educate others that there's something here and more research needs to be done at a systematic systematic level to create standards or measures to determine um, you know how do you keep the corporate social responsibility schemes from not just being on paper but in practice uh, being robust and cover things like workplace health and safety and um, not just pay lip service or be marketing ploys or you know just greenwashing to conceal some of the environmental practices that are happening in the cannabis sector. 
Yeah, and what is the difference between the cannabis industry and um, the tobacco industry when it comes to these expectations for corporate social responsibility? And and I know you had mentioned that a lot of your research takes place in Malawi, or or and a lot of to- tobacco in general is just grown, typically grown in developing countries. So, is it? easier for these companies, these tobacco companies to just cover up their exploitative practices because they um, don't take, you know, they don't take place within the United States? Uh, Yeah, great question. So the global tobacco industry, which includes cigarette makers and leaf buying companies, it's a well-oiled machine. They've been um, doing this for years and years, a couple decades administering corporate social responsibility schemes. And so there's some major differences because of, you know, the history and the sophisticated strategies of corporate social responsibility. But at the same time, there's a lot of differences. So I think the similarities are companies, whether tobacco or cannabis, recognize the value of portraying themselves as responsible, being good corporate citizens, being engaged along community lines, it's like the right thing to do. And I think the cannabis sector, um, similar to the global tobacco sector, is is developing it further to be able to use the corporate social responsibility projects as a way to potentially distract public attention from bad practices. So that's, at least in terms of some of my findings, some of the things that I think are are consistent with the two industries. But I think what's different is the magnitude or the size of the global tobacco industry. You know, they have over 130 countries where they produce tobacco, including the United States. And so they have sophisticated approaches to using their influence in terms of claiming to be legitimate and responsible along corporate lines to try to get different seats at policymaking tables to then influence the way policies are developed, essentially diluting rules and regulations or policies that would hold them accountable. So in the cannabis sector, which is much smaller and you know relatively new, there are some trends where you find cannabis companies with robust corporate social responsibility schemes trying to use their reputation as being you know, good corporate citizens to then argue for a seat at the table to then influence regulations and thus diluting or weakening legislation that would hold them accountable to their practices. And I think this happened early on in Colorado in 2015 or so when regulations were being made about pesticides. Um, for some reason, the state they the for some reason state policymakers, because of their lack of knowledge of cannabis we're totally fine having cannabis representatives come and participate in the making of policy. Whereas in the global tobacco sector, there is this understanding that anytime you let uh, tobacco company representatives participate at the policy making level, they tend to, you know, and this is common sense, they tend to make policies that are uh, beneficial to them and not necessarily uh, supportive of public health. Yeah, I do want to I do want to be the devil's advocate for a moment here because because I, I've, of course, seen this happening and I think it's very common in the industry. Um, exactly what you're saying. These business owners 
be representatives and help form help form the policies for the industry. But without that, just because the government just ha- has so little knowledge about how cannabis is cultivated, how these products are manufactured, or especially at the beginning, you know, I think there's more and more knowledge coming to the surface at this point. But I mean, what was the alternative? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think the alternative could have been, and again, we can't go back and change things, but I think maybe a slower pace of rolling out regulations because as we're seeing now, because of the way the regulations were written and now being implemented and changing in the favor of larger companies, you have the the disappearance of small mom and pop shops and this explosion of these larger companies that are buying up companies and licenses left and right. And so you have this phenomenon of the Walmartization of the cannabis sector, which is really alarming for, I think, all people who are supportive of cannabis as medicine for patients, but also for worker rights and labor protections. And so mm-hmm. I think I think the question is is justified and, you know, we can't go back and change things, but I think we're, new, we're in a new environment where, you know, you have similar to tobacco, you know, big tobacco, you have big cannabis, which is a problem for a lot of people in the sector now. And I think there's no going back and we're going to increasingly find um, this consolidation of companies that may not be best for patients and workers. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was definitely something I wanted to discuss. And there have already been some big tobacco companies making investments and acquisitions in the cannabis industry outside of the U.S. So I know um, Britain's Imperial Brands invested in a Canadian cannabis company a couple years ago and Philip Morris invested in an Israeli medical cannabis company. So the interest is obviously there. And there's a lot of speculation that these acquisitions could happen in the U.S. too once it becomes federally illegal. So how do you think that will that kind of merging between these two industries, cannabis and tobacco, how do you think that will affect the cannabis industry? And I'm really curious to hear your perspective as an anthropologist. How will this impact the culture of cannabis and even also the potent, the validity of cannabis as medicine? You know, if you if you know if you know Philip Morris is selling your the gel capsules that you're using for medicine, I don't know. How, how does that really impact someone's interpretation of whether cannabis is valid as medicine or, or not? Yeah, great. You know, these questions I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, in terms of the global tobacco sector getting into cannabis, I haven't necessarily followed it the way I should be following it. But based on my you know, 20 plus years of understanding the tobacco sector as this gigantic industry comes into cannabis, I don't think it's going to be a good thing from the perspective of consumers or um, workers. And so the reason I say that is because if you look globally and even in the U.S., because there are exploitative conditions um, that the tobacco sector engages in, even in the U.S., including child labor, um, I think I think the industry and again, this is the way capitalism and the corporate sector set up. They're interested primarily in a regular rate of profit. And so they will do pretty much anything to ensure that profits and earnings come steadily, but also increasingly. And so that means as the tobacco sector comes in, certainly we're going to see some new developments, maybe new products. But I think with the 
the philosophy of these companies in terms of their interest in the bottom line, I don't think we're going to see much development in terms of health and safety and workers' protections, or we might even see an increase in harassment of workers who choose to assert their rights along, uh, you know, union or uh, labor peace agreement lines. And, and so over time, the sector, I think, is going to change dramatically. And I don't know if it's going to change in a direction that's going to be positive, except maybe providing better shareholder value for these individuals who um, put money into the larger multi-state cannabis companies, as well as investing in uh, tobacco companies, because the the few people, the stakeholders, they'll be the ones probably making most of the money. Uh, but you, I could be wrong, and maybe I am wrong, uh, but I'm just not hopeful only because of the acceleration of the consolidation in cannabis in the United States and how this is leading to, you know, sort of a race to the bottom where uh, wages have not been increasing for ordinary workers. And then also you might find an increase in um, a product that is not necessarily good for consumers themselves. And so I think mm -hmm. we're in a holding pattern to just wait and see as the cannabis gets consumed by the tobacco sector, uh, what kind of new opportunities are going to open up, but also what are going to be some of the limitations or restrictions at the workplace level, as well as problems at the consumer level. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have two follow-up questions on that topic. So the first is in terms of workers' rights, um, I, I also do think it's important to, to mention that um, standard like cannabis workers, especially at um, you know entry level dispensary jobs, have really high turnover rates. So when you are you know when you're looking at that as a data point, when you're looking at okay, there's no increase in wages for let's say dispensary workers. Um, you know, how much do you take into account that the fact that there's also this really high turnover, or I guess on the flip side of that is a high turnover because the working conditions are aren't very good. And, um, yeah, and then my, my other question would be for any business owners within the cannabis industry who are listening, whether they're owning dispensaries or, or cultivation facilities, what recommendations would you give them to kind of prevent this industry from, from landing in the wrong hands, especially if they are committed to, um, to seeing this industry move in a much better direction than the tobacco industry and, and you know, maintaining some degree of corporate social responsibility. Yeah, Emily, thanks for the questions. Let's take the first one first. So the high turnover is definitely something that is, I think, consistent in Colorado's cannabis sector and I think elsewhere, but I'm just familiar with Colorado and I've heard estimates say about 40 to 60% of turnover of workers each year in the cannabis sector, mostly at the lower levels, you know, bud tenders, trimmers. And, and so it's a two-pronged problem because you could argue that um, individuals who are ordinary workers, let's say trimming weed, that they are dissatisfied with the wages that they get because they're barely above the minimum wage, far from a living wage. And so they choose to go to another facility where the pay is better and then maybe the benefits are better. That's one thing. Um, the other argument I've heard, and this is very condescending, I hear it a lot from cannabis company owners, is that the workers, you know, they come in, they don't know how hard the job is, 
they um, maybe are just kind of smoking too much weed and didn't expect they'd have to work so hard. And so there's this attitude at the higher levels where they treat these workers as maybe being sort of dumb or stupid. And so it's very patronizing. And so so there's still more research needs to be done to figure out why there's such a high turnover. But I think one of the quick fixes that could be done would be paying a living wage, could be between 15, 18 bucks an hour, that could allow an ordinary worker to survive in the Denver metro area um, and, and maybe increase loyalty, increase longevity of workers and uh, prevent them from being poached from other companies. So, so again, this is an open question, but this is a big problem for the cannabis sector because one of the um, unintended consequences is you might see training be watered down or diluted because some companies might think, why should we invest in these workers and properly training them if they're just going to be out the door? So, um, again, an open question and another research area that I think in the future I'd love to learn more about by understanding workers' perspectives as well as the perspectives of owners themselves. Now, in terms of advice or suggestions to companies and um, businesses, I mean, it depends on which type of company or business you're talking about. Are these multi-state businesses or are they, you know, small businesses here in Colorado that are just, you know, have one or two licenses? But in either case, in terms of, let's say, the high turnover, the first suggestion would be properly pay, properly compensate workers for the labor that they do. So that could be something higher than a living wage. Having a good benefits package is really important. Um, ensuring that workers, uh, if they choose to engage in um, unionization or push for collective bargaining, that workers are not fired or harassed because there's a long list of uh, cases in Colorado where that's been the case. So that's one kind of recommendation. And then in terms of corporate social responsibility, I think for me, the the simplest step is asking company owners to take a pledge that they won't obstruct a worker's right to organize or form a union. And just getting owners or managers to take a pledge, I found in Colorado, there's so much hostility or these anti-worker, anti-union sensibilities that need to be understood. And then on a broader level, I think just more communication between company owners, managers, and workers, ensuring that the training is appropriate, ensuring that workers have what they need, recognizing the constraints that business owners operate under, whether it's all the regulations or the taxes or other costs. And then I think a larger problem, which I don't have an answer to, but it definitely is going to affect the landscape on which cannabis is transacted and people consume cannabis and produce cannabis is re really thinking through what can we do to more carefully understand and potentially reverse the consolidation of these licenses into multi-state cannabis companies, which is, I think, to me, an alarming issue happening in Colorado as well as in other states. Yeah, I agree. I, I wonder what you think about or if you're familiar with any of the social equity programs that have been implemented in new states um, that have gotten sued for some of these consolidations or, or monopolies. Um, you know, so I, I know California had one and then Illinois had one. So so do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, social equity is one of the emerging issues on my plate. And I have a couple different 
entry point for me to understand and educate myself about social equity. Um, I think the first thing is recognizing the definition of social equity. I agree it's definitely about, you know, dealing with the past harms to those individuals who have been victims of the war on um, uh, the war on drugs. So, so there's no doubt that individuals, mostly people of color, those that live in neighborhoods that have been disproportionately affected due to, you know, racism or or other other problems of poverty, that they have access to licenses. So, yes, I agree with that a hundred percent. The problem is. It's too narrow of a definition, and I think if you look at California, if you look at Illinois, the two examples that you mentioned, they actually have provisions for labor peace agreements, basically to get a license that, uh, let's say, for example, if we implement it in Colorado, that a company has to have some kind of workplace practice where they agree not to harm uh, workers who engage in collective bargaining or unionization, and, and so I think... What we need to see in terms of social equity is a broadening of the definition to ensure that there's workplace equity. And so it's not just a, a simple approach where you have like diversity in the workforce. And so I think equity along social lines is sort of the major topic right now. And in Colorado, we're still trying to work out the definition of how do you define a equity applicant. Uh, and then um, the larger issue, which is a really hard nut to crack, is most of the licenses, most of the people benefiting from corporate cannabis are white people. And so I have nothing against white people. My mom is white, my dad's from Ecuador. So, you know, I'm a, a person of color, but at the same time, I think these individuals who have so much consolidated power are refusing and obstructing social equity that would allow a loosening of the licenses of simply going to people who are Caucasian and have access to capital. And so I'm hopeful that social equity will increase discussion about the problems of white privilege, uh, white power, as well as um, other things that are preventing people of color and uh, legitimate social equity applicants of accessing licenses in a way that's fair and reasonable and transparent. So I think Denver, Colorado generally, is a great laboratory to look at to see how we're unfolding social equity um, being inspired and informed by other states. Yeah, I I agree completely. And I think the the program in Illinois is very well-intentioned for the most part, but um, unfortunately some of these bigger like these bigger licenses which and these companies which are run mostly by white men have found these workarounds or have found these ways to actually benefit from some of these policies by recruiting people of color to be on their payroll um, and, and sure paying them so 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 there is this there is this incentive for these companies to um, build more diverse teams, but at at the same time, then that is still kind of an obstruction to these people going out and applying for licenses and, and running these businesses on their own. They're just joining these companies um, that are already, you know, already operating or, or are well capitalized. Um, but but we're, I still don't think that we're seeing a lot of uh, diversity at the ownership level. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think we'll see if we don't approach the social equity issue carefully, 
that there's going to be a few, you know, bad apples that come in and and work the system to their favor, and then at the end of this, the end of the day, see no change along diversity lines or equity lines. Uh, and so it's a great opportunity right now to be in Denver, to be in Colorado, to see how these things are being played out, and then to really make visible the practices of companies that really prefer things to stay the way they are and to not break them up or be more transparent so or more equal and have more parity so other people can benefit from the cannabis sector. Because as it stands now, the cannabis sector in general primarily benefits a very small number of people. And so my research, my engagement is really not just looking at the workplace level to ensure workers are properly paid and have appropriate benefits and access to collective bargaining agreements, but also that companies have some kind of mechanism where they're held accountable and there's transparency in the practices uh, because this affects a lot of people. You know, this is a huge sector, an emerging sector in Colorado. And I think um, it's an exciting part to be not just talking about it, but to be engaged in it at, at all different kind of levels. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any data um, about ownership of cannabis businesses in Colorado or across the U.S. and, and what the diversity looks looks like at that level? So what I'm trying to do now, this is sort of getting into emerging projects of mine that I hope in 2020 and 2021 to gain more traction. And so all I'm trying to do is gather that data or develop the tools to put together corporate biographies to track over time how the makeup of licenses for these multi-state operators, how it changes over time. And part of that process is just tracking the license transfer, um, the different name changes of the owner, owning companies, but then also trying to figure out the ethnicity or cultural makeup of the owners to then have the data that you asked about. Um, I think we can agree if you go to these industry meetings, if you look at the popular media, whether it's social media or magazines, um, many of the faces are white faces. And there's groups coming up that are going to be playing that are playing a role in trying to push for equity and parity. But I think the the dominant portrait of the cannabis industry individual at the ownership level is a, a Caucasian man sometimes referred to as like bro culture. Uh, and, and so I think the data needs to be collected to determine the composition of these multi-state operators along licensing lines and see how they change over time, especially along ethnicity or cultural and even class lines. Uh, yeah, I think that's really important data to have and just to hold the industry accountable. And so we really understand and know what is happening and how this industry is evolving. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's others doing some great work. It's just a matter of um, getting things published and trying to make stuff available for non-academic audiences, which is a challenge me and other academic people face. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why it's important to get into other areas besides academic work, whether it's blog entries or even other kinds of multimedia work. Yeah. And I think education is such a key part of this, too, because I, I really do think 
Um, I really do think that some there are cannabis business owners out there who just aren't educated on these topics, on corporate social responsibility, on workers' rights. Uh, so I think having that and what that means, really. So I think having the education out there, you know, getting this getting this data, getting this research to business owners so that they can um, make informed decisions. Exactly. And, and kind of on that topic, something that that came up in my in my mind when you were talking about um, workers wages, especially when we talk about trimmers. So and I'm curious about your thoughts on this because I know you're from California. But but I think trimming um well, let's black market trimming in Northern California and Humboldt County um, was was such a big it was such a big industry or, or really provided a lot of um, black market jobs for several years. I know so I know many people who have, you know, spent a summer out in California trimming weed and um, and there's also and they would usually get paid per pound. So you could really make you could really make a decent amount of money in a short period of time but at the same time uh the working conditions were probably dangerous not ideal by any means but but i'm wondering how you know so so let's say um the black market industry was kind of shifted around there and then the workers the practices were really the uh, people getting rewarded for how much they could produce in a period of time so maybe it's a hundred dollars per pound and now having these owners having these business owners kind of shift to okay well you need to pay someone 18 dollars an hour no matter what they produce it's uh, I'm not saying it's not the right thing to do. I absolutely believe in workers' rights and working conditions, but but I want to hear your thoughts on this shift from this black market industry where people were re rewarded very much for production, for efficiency. and um, and now kind of this more um, progressive but but healthier, absolutely. I, I know it's I know it's all positive, but but I'm wondering, yeah, shouldn't we expect to see a little bit of hesitancy or resistance as the market shifts, um, you know, from a, a black market industry to a legalized in the light industry? Yeah, Emily, you raise a good point. And I early on, because I had to put sort of parameters around the work I do, I, I focus early on until today on the legal cannabis sector. So I didn't really put much attention into what happened or is happening in the underground or unregistered market. So I know trimming still exists. Um, under the table, and um, it also persists, obviously, in the legal sector. So I think, you know, again, for me, the the whole approach I take is how to ensure that more people benefit from the cannabis sector. And whether whether you're at the trimming table or the counter as a bud tender or, you know, mixing soil in the cultivation facilities, I think the sector and the data is there, it's generating a lot of money, a lot of revenue. And I think ordinary people, trimmers especially, are not getting compensated fairly. Uh, and so I'm going to try to do what I can as a researcher, as an engaged anthropologist, to document and understand the work routine and then try to figure out realistically, given the constraints and pressures on owners, what would be reasonable in terms of a, a wage and a benefits package that could ensure workers remain loyal and remain committed and safe and well-trained and prevent, as we discussed earlier, this this high turnover rate. And, and so I think the shift from illegal or underground unregistered trimming or trimming in the unregistered sector, it's an interesting phenomenon, but I think the cannabis sector 
and when I say the sector, at least the owners and managers, I think can maybe be more open to figure out how to understand um, what we could do to ensure workers are paid fairly or there's parity in, in terms of workers' wages and benefits packages, but also that they are protected along health and safety lines. And so I'm interested in the livelihoods of trimmers to recognize and honor the knowledge that they have about their own conditions and try to bring attention to their knowledge to ensure that any kind of discussion about the cannabis sector is not just limited to the owners, which is how it is now at industry conferences and other events. And you rarely get the perspective of workers, uh, which I think is um, missing and something that's important. And so that's sort of how I'm using my academic position in my interest in policy or educational media to get people to talk about this stuff more, to bring attention to, to workplaces that are doing it well, and then maybe um, try to hold those companies accountable to their bad practices to ensure that workers, again, are fairly paid and then have a really good benefits package and have the freedom because it's their right as workers to form unions and have collective bargaining agreements. Mm-hmm. I want to, okay, so I want to switch gears and talk about the the hemp industry for a moment. Um, and, 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 and I'm defining hemp kind of as at the, with the definition that the federal government has, so cannabis with less than 0.3% THC. And, and as this becomes, with the passing of the Farm Bill, and as this becomes more widespread and cultivated all over the United States, um, we're also seeing it cultivated in other countries as well now as the demand is going up. So I, I think we're definitely going to see a rise in hemp cultivation in developing countries. And it, it's a trend. Toward, and, and I think eventually, you know, we're really going to see this become a commodity crop. So as this happens, do you see the hemp industry in danger of uh, adopting some of these exploitative practices that happen in the tobacco industry, um, especially in developing countries? So I've been tracking and engaged at the hemp sector globally and in Colorado for a number of years, like informally. Um, I've been tracking and did one or two episodes on my public access television show called Getting High on Anthropology. I've done episodes about Malawi um, in Central Africa that has a hemp sector that just legalized hemp. And then oh, also so they this... do grow they do grow hemp in Malawi right now. Yes. yes. Okay. Mm. Yeah, in a couple of different and, African countries. And who is who is operating those hemp operations? Is it tobacco companies or is it independent? Uh, from my understanding, they're independent. There's a company called Invagro in Malawi. They had one or two years of like a pilot study and they got government approval. So they just this year legalized and the sector is, you know, beginning to take off. One of the problems with these countries like Malawi and others is markets and access to markets. And so, you know, they have the knowledge and, and the, the products, but they're just trying to figure out, for example, how to get products. <coughs> Excuse me trying to understand how to get products from Malawi to the U.S. and other places. And so, but back to your question, I mean, the global hemp sector is really, really exciting. I mean, hemp, as you know, has so many different uses and we have all this um, sort of regulatory issues to work through. And I'm not too concerned about labor issues at the farm level in the hemp sector. I'm definitely concerned um, in terms of trying to understand how the sector is emerging and I'm interested in workers' livelihoods. 
and I'm interested in what employers, what hemp farmers are doing to have a safe and protected workforce. But I'm not too worried because um, the trends I've seen so far, the levels of exploitation aren't, aren't necessarily there. Um, that doesn't mean if I dig deeper, I wouldn't see some bad practices. But I think on the whole, the global hemp sector is this incredible opportunity to understand the emerging of these new markets and then also an increase in workforce and then maybe some innovations in terms of health and safety training for cultivation workers in the hemp sector. Uh, so I'm sort of hopeful and not just for uh, workers themselves, but also for customers and consumers to have access to this wide range of products that could come out of hemp that is currently sort of being obstructed because we still have this ideology of prohibition that exists in many parts of the world. Uh, so again, I'm hopeful about the emerging hemp sector at the global level and hopeful also as like a research opportunity for me and others who want to understand cultivation practices and what workers are doing to protect themselves and what owners are doing to ensure that they have health and safety practices that are maybe above and beyond uh, the minimum requirements. Yeah, I think my hope with the hemp industry would be that it can evolve to be more of a social, like social responsible industry because because it's newer and hopefully people around the globe are more informed. Um, whereas, you know, tobacco, people have been growing tobacco commercially since the beginning of time, it seems. So it was much easier for that industry to evolve is like the well-oiled machine that you mentioned before with really exploitative practices. Yeah. And then, of course, as you mentioned earlier, with the tobacco sector potentially going into hemp production and larger companies also getting into this sector, you know, you may find the replication of bad practices from the tobacco sector into the hemp sector. But I think we're still so early, at least from my understanding, or it's just an area that's been under-researched. Um, but I think as these different countries do develop a more sophisticated and um, broad hemp sector at the cultivation level, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to understand the development and maybe guide them in a direction that's good for everyone, for consumers, workers, as well as owners and managers. Yeah. So I, I think you have a really interesting career path because you're you're an anthropologist, but you also do a lot of story storytelling and a lot of um, you create videos and a TV show and you use media to um, kind of share these ideas. So what's the role of storytelling in creating and shifting a public movement and specifically with cannabis? So for me, I grew up very much in the war on drugs era and we watched Reefer Madness and health class and uh, learned about cannabis as the gateway drug. And now 10, 15 years later, we've shifted from that complete prohibition in the U.S. And now we have medical cannabis markets in over 30 states. So so this seems to have happened very gradually, but also very suddenly. So so I'm wondering how, how do the stories that we tell about substances or, or, or plants or, or even certain molecules like THC, how does that impact um, the general public's view? And how does this public perception affect legislation and, you know, essentially change in in laws and in businesses? Thanks for the question. So storytelling, story sharing, first of all, to explain, it's this process of creating a community of practice where individuals share narratives about their lived experience, 
connected to cannabis. It could be as consumers, it could be as workers, it could be as owners. And what I've done with my approach to story sharing and storytelling is really just figure out, you know, who, where are the people willing, number one, to share stories and make their stories public? And then how do you frame them in a way that they resonate with different issues and themes happening in the cannabis sector? And so I'm a strong advocate of looking at um, anecdotes and narratives and stories as a way to pull into um, the policies and the different challenges of policymaking, you know, pull into this emotional heartstring issue of having a narrative shared, similar as like a testimonial in front of a city council or in front of Congress. So these ter- uh, these testimonies that are counter narratives to the dominant narrative. So people who use cannabis, for example, um, a ritual of using cannabis tea to help with stress or individuals like in the case of my research who talked about a fear of green lung, uh, which is this condition similar to like the black lung of coal miners that uh, people would invoke or an individual would invoke to demonstrate their concern about having spores in their lungs and the effects of being a trimmer and exposed to powdery mildew and mold. So I think storytelling, story sharing is so vital to just touching people on a personal level and then getting individuals to then be willing to share their own stories, their own relationship to cannabis, whether it's consumption or production, and then trying to change the dominant discourse about cannabis as being like you know, the devil's lettuce or however people like to describe it, because there still is this strong prohibitionist ideology out there that I think we all need to tackle to get people to see cannabis as medicine, cannabis as this adult use um, product that people can use for different reasons, just like they would use have a glass of wine or uh, a, a beer. And so I'm trying to look at not just the production and dissemination of stories, but then analysis of the language used in stories to understand structure and then just to push narratives that can influence the landscape on which policies are made. And so I think um, getting more and more stories produced and then getting them disseminated in front of legislators or policymakers is one tool in a larger set of tools to try to... um, educate others of the value and the the magic behind cannabis as a plant and cannabis as a, as a sector. And so what I've done is created a TV show called Getting High in Anthropology to get people to share their experiences in cannabis along a wide variety of lines, primarily for educational purposes, but also I was just getting so tired of these conferences that are only available for people who want to spend $500 to access them I felt it was unfair, and so I created this show to create good quality content about cannabis and share it freely at no cost. And so this show, it's available on my website, fsandgreen.org, is primarily to get stories out there, but also encourage others to share their experiences and stories uh, in cannabis or somehow connected to cannabis. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. We can put a link to that show in the the show notes for this so people can watch some some good episodes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So my final question is really about your future research on cannabis and what if you could learn anything about about the industry or about cannabis and cannabis in general, what would that be? And what topic interests you most? Great. Thank you. Yeah, and I've learned so much from people 
engaged in the cannabis sector, whether owners or managers or especially workers, trade unionists, I've learned a ton. And I think the two areas that I'm going into, which I think are totally fascinating and consistent with some of my work in the tobacco sector, is number one, this idea of social consumption, specifically workers' health in social consumption spaces and workers' perspectives about the hazard of secondhand cannabis smoke. So I'm really interested not only to understand workers' perspectives about the risk of exposure to secondhand cannabis smoke, but also what facilities are doing, those operators of social consumption spaces, what they're doing to navigate the regulatory system to have good practices where they can have social spaces that aren't necessarily harmful or have a lower risk of harm for workers in the spaces. That's one area. Um, and what I hope to learn is that there's companies doing some really good things to protect workers from exposure to secondhand cannabis smoke, particularly particulates that could be harmful to respiratory systems, but um, also understand uh, how Colorado is maybe going above and beyond standards in terms of social consumption and uh, protecting workers from this environmental problem that is perceived to be as bad as tobacco. So that's mm -hmm. one area, and I'm happy to, go, happy to go back to it. The other area, which I'm really fascinated by, which also jumps from an issue I've done or am doing in the tobacco sector, is the idea of labor trafficking in the global cannabis sector. So there's evidence that... Um, laborers from Vietnam have been trafficked to cultivation facilities that are unrecorded or illegal in the UK. And so I'm interested in tracking and tracing these individuals from villages in Vietnam that travel and are trafficked uh, to the UK, the United Kingdom, and try to understand the whole process of why companies do this, what are the livelihoods like of these individuals who've been trafficked, and then to understand what is the extent of labor trafficking in the global cannabis sector? So these are two of the projects that are emerging um, in the research areas that I'm doing in my cannabis studies. Oh, wow. I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The global cannabis sector, you know, and this is now merging into the unrecorded area, which I mostly don't focus on. I like to focus on the legal sector but i'm just right, drawn right. to this so know, these are black this... market black market cultivation operations in the uk exactly and they're yeah. in labor trafficking wow well that's dark yeah it's kind of horrible but um i don't think it's much different than in california years ago there were problems with in the Humboldt uh, area similar kinds of issues just maybe the magnitude uh was a bit different so i know there was um evidence of um you know, trimmer grants and other exploitative practice of individuals who would trim. Uh, but, you know, you can't compare these two things, but I'm just interested at this global phenomenon and really understanding is it isolated this particular area, Vietnam, UK, or are there other um, areas of the world where you see this? And is it under-researched and what can we do to understand it um, more? Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's such important work. And I think it is, and we've touched on this throughout the whole conversation, but yeah, I think it is really important that cannabis culture, which I think is often expressed as this counterculture, alternative, fun, you know, like love, like loving and hippie almost is really aligned with those kind of values and principles and is not really having these undercover exploitative practices. 
Yeah. And of course, at the same time, I don't want to deny that, you know, cannabis, it's such a great social glue to bring people together and celebrate Mm -hmm. life and have fun and push creativity. And, you know, I'm an advocate for cannabis. um, I'm an advocate for cannabis consumption, um, doing it responsibly. I'm an advocate for social responsibility in the cannabis sector, but I'm also an advocate uh, to ensure that more people benefit from this huge sector and uh, to be able to track it over time to see what we can do together as a community to make sure that uh, that that people who are engaged in it along labor lines or or ownership lines or consumption lines that we're all getting the the most mileage out of this plant in this process that um, can really shape who we are as a culture, but also open up new areas of research uh, to understand and maybe influence things for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your work and thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and insight with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I really appreciate your interest and uh, uh, really excited about this podcast project you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.